0: Hello and welcome, you're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Morath and Hannah Shaw, the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As you know, we're all about birds of prey at the Trust, but birds don't live alone, they're part of a whole ecosystem so the podcast is our chance to take a more general look at wildlife beyond birds.
1: If you're itching to know more about biodiversity or barn owls, or eager to explore the worlds of woodlands and wetlands, basically, if you like wildlife, you're in good company.
0: And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. Coming up in this month's episode, we'll be joined by a very special guest, zoologist and science communicator Sophie Pavel, to talk about everything from water boatmen to beavers.
1: Sophie's passion for nature and finding quirky ways to communicate it is infectious, so stay tuned to hear our chat with her a little later on. <music> So, Hannah, it's been uh, a month of daffodils pushing up to the grasses and frogs spawning in ponds. Well, in some people's ponds, but not mine. Um, Have you spotted anything cool wildlife-wise recently?
0: Um, Yeah, lots of things. I'm very excited about spring. I love it because I can just get out and start getting my nerdy books out um, and start brushing up on all the wildflowers (laughs) and trees and stuff. Um, So... Oh, I, my best one, and I think you were with me, was the first bumblebee that I saw of the year.
1: Do you know? I've never seen anybody get more excited about seeing a bumblebee than you did that day. We were sat and having a socially distanced meeting about nature's a hoot, and Hannah just like squealed with delight from the <laughs> other side of the patio. <laughs> it was great, and I, it's, yeah, it's really exciting, isn't it? When we've kind of been in the depths of winter and cold and wet, to suddenly see a bumblebee, that's a, it's yeah. an exciting moment in the year.
0: Yeah, I was really excited because I'd seen everybody posting on Twitter about their first bumblebees and I was just really excited to see my first bumblebee. So that was very nice. Well
1: that was like me about frog spawn. Like yeah. everybody's like, Oh, we've got frog spawn in the pond I and I if you remember I had that I had that frog in the pond last year and I was like, Well surely yeah. they know where it is now. You know they've oh. got over the fact that next door neighbour put in a great big fence, brand new fence, oh. and uh, I have really sneakily like dug a little hole underneath a part of the fence.
2: <laughs>
1: and Did I don't you? think They've noticed. <laughs> yeah, I have. I don't think they've noticed. Uh, so I'm hoping wildlife can get into my garden a bit more easily. But yeah, I've not, not got any frog spawn in my in my pond because you you started a little pond as well, didn't you? Have you got anything in yours?
0: Yeah, we we've got a pond. Um, I've sort of done the same i haven't dug any any really blatant holes but i have sort of where there's bits because our garden is so uneven but we're we're the same we've got it's a new build so we've got a huge fence around it which is horrible and it means that things can't really get in and out other than birds and well invertebrates Mm. but yeah so i've sort of strategically left like a few small gaps so i think amphibians could get in but no sadly no frogs yet um, no, no. You, but you,
1: you put a new tree in your garden, didn't you? I did, You're I put me? a new
0: tree in. Yeah, I put a new tree in. It's a white beam. We're trying to sort of stick to native species. And it's only, what, like seven feet tall? And after putting the tree in, we've had goldfinches every day and we didn't have them at all before. And we've had a pair of blue tits come and prospect as well. And so we've moved our... um. We had a bird box that wasn't in a very good position, so we've moved that into a better position, and very, very hopeful that the blue tits might move into the bird box.
1: Ooh, that would be exciting. Yeah,
0: I would love that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we've had the same thing. We bought a bird box and we popped it on the fence, and I think I'm kind of thinking there's not really anywhere kind of high enough, and maybe that's yeah. part of the problem. But we have had a blue tit occasionally come and stick stick his or her head in and have a little look, but but nothing oh, more there than you go. that. Now, Hannah, I heard that we had some good news from one of our conservation projects—the uh, one in Pakistan. Are you able to tell us a bit more about the vulture project there and why we're excited?
0: Yes, I I am particularly excited about this project at the moment, just because it's sort of it's been going for quite a few years, but it seems to have picked up in the last couple of years. So, um, the project is to conserve vultures in pakistan and it's part of a whole cons we work with wwf pakistan on the ground in the country in country and it's part of a whole um sort of consortium called save which is saving asia's vultures from extinct from extinction Um, and that's across a few different countries in south asia to conserve um critically endangered vultures there um and I'm sure many of our listeners will know what the problem was in Asia was in the late 1990s, there was a, cra- a massive crash, more than 99% um, of vultures in um, in that area due to a veterinary drug called diclofenac. And the veterinary drug is used to treat lameness in cattle. And so when those cattle then die, that diclofenac stays in the system. And it's an important food source for vultures. The Um, cattle carcasses and so it was killing the vultures basically and it caused a huge population crash now what we're doing um, is we have a sort of two-pronged approach to the project there we have what are called vulture safe zones and we have a breeding center Um, vulture safe zones are basically do what they say on the tin really they are an area that is kept safe from those veterinary drugs that are damaging to vultures Um, so it's an area that's kept safe for vultures so we have one vulture safe zone and we have another what's called a provisional or potential vulture vulture safe zone um, that we're hoping will um, sort of come into fruition this year so there's sort of monitoring in that area now um, working with the government and working with the authorities there to try and get that area properly um, demarcated as a vulture safe zone and then our second prong which is the breeding center which is the bit that i'm most excited about is um a captive population of asian white-backed vultures which is one of the main species there um and it's doing really really well and it's done really well this year so we've had three new chicks this year which is very very exciting wow. yeah um and i'm only just allowed to announce the third chick because we like to wait wait 30 days you know just to make sure that everything is okay Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so we've had basically one a month since December, um so December, January, and February. yeah, and they're all three are doing well, parents doing really well, um, which is brilliant because the colony there is I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's about 25 adults. So it's pretty good going to get three viable um obviously all those not all those adults are paired up as well, so it's it's great to get three chicks. Um, and these are birds that eventually, once the area area is safe, will be able to be released back into the wild, which is also is very so exciting. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: it's ama- It's really amazing. I mean, having chicks from like any of the birds that are here on site, people will know that we, we breed birds here at the Trust as well. Um, it, it's always yeah. exciting to have chicks. Like they are, whether it's yeah. a vulture or an owl, they are really cute. But I cannot stress enough how exciting it is when it's yeah. all for the reason that they're a, you know it's a critically endangered bird this is a a I bird know. that we're really really worried about the the state of their population in the wild and we've got three yeah. precious baby vulture chicks and it's just i know yeah, it makes everything we <laughs> do worthwhile doesn't it it's so exciting <laughs>
0: Last month, you might remember, we introduced a new element to Nature's A Hoot. It's called the Matter of Fact Challenge. And the challenge involves you and me, Tom, going head to head each month to come up with the best fact in the chosen category.
1: That's right. And now there's a little matter of last month's challenge to clear up. Last month's category was...
0: Best Animal Adaptation.
1: Right. And uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, it was indeed my yellow-billed hornbill that won that particular Snatched. challenge. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> picked me to the post there. Uh, and how did I win, you might ask? <laughs> well, I won by votes. Each month, those of you who are listening can cast your vote for who you think has come up with the best fact via our Instagram stories or via a poll on our Twitter page.
0: Yeah. So I reckon there's everything to play for this month. So shall we get on with the Matter of Fact Challenge? Let's do it. This month's Matter of Fact Challenge is...
1: Best Animal Parent. Now, Hannah, you went first last time, so I'm going to jump straight in there with mine. Um, I think we should stay pretty close to home, really, I suppose, in terms of our parenting skills. As human beings, we're not bad, but I want to raise you the orangutan, those incredible animals that we see wandering through the rainforest treetops of Borneo and Sumatra Um, they're incredible animals in their own right, but their kind of their parental skills just seem amazing, they seem to outweigh almost anything else in the animal kingdom I think, they have uh, other than human beings uh, the longest childhood of any animal, so they actually have a a childhood, a period to grow up where they live with their parents. And during that time, they learn to eat and sleep and protect themselves uh, within that environment. And their mothers in particular, it's important to stress this, um, the dads seem like they're absolutely rubbish, so maybe that goes against me. (laughs) But I think the mums are so good that it brings up up the entire species. Apparently, the fathers just kind of like meander off when the deed is done and they don't come back. right um, so mine bit, is all about the mum as well <laughs> oh god yeah we're we've we're, we're been very matriarchal today but that's all right because <laughs> the mothers are so good with the orangutans oh, we've all seen those images haven't we of the infant orangutans clinging to their mums for the first couple of years they're so yeah. cute um and uh and then as they get to about five years yeah. old they learn to come so how
0: long do they back. stay with their mum then
1: uh well they stay very close to their mums until they're about 10 years old would you believe they become sexually mature at 12 years old but they don't start really getting independent until until after their 10th birthday um and get this this is even this is even nicer so they um become kind of sexually mature at about age 12 they go and find their own partners and even at that point when they're around 15 or 16 years old they still come back and visit their mum. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, orangutan gets my vote.
0: Okay, well, it's a good one, I must say. I'm impressed. Thank you. Um, so, I am diving into the marine world. Ooh. And mine is more about the care of um, the young when they're very, very young to make sure that they have the absolute best start in life. And the dedication of this parent, specifically the mother as well, um, is pretty epic. Um, It is the giant Pacific octopus, which is actually the largest octopus in the world. It is a ginormous 68 kilograms, (laughs) which is about 150 pounds. Wow. um, And can be up to... 6 meters across so when they stretch the tentacles out can be up to 6 meters across um but interestingly this animal only lives for about 2 to 3 years um okay. and the sort of um purpose of the of the female octopus's life is to successfully breed and they just do that once in their life and they can lay i found a few different figures, but they can lay up to four hundred thousand eggs in one go. Oh my god. In what's what's termed a super brood of eggs. (laughs) (laughs) So this wonderful mother she um lays her eggs and then she stays with the eggs and she cleans them by blowing nutrient rich water over them and keeping them oxygenated, moving her tentacles around them, and she doesn't feed herself at all during this time and it can be up to six months that she does this for she's completely dedicated to these eggs doesn't feed at all herself um, until the eggs um, then hatch and then the little miniature tiny octopuses go off and start their lives and then the mother dies so she just dedicates her quite a large proportion of her life to looking after her up to 400,000 eggs and giving them a really good start in life. So, yeah, the oh. giant Pacific octopus.
1: Wow, that's amazing. They, should, they could make that into a movie, couldn't they? Yeah. It's like it's just so epic. I've got my work cut out this month. It's 1-0 to me so far. But remember, it's up to you as our listener, wherever you're listening to Nature's a Hoot, to vote for which fact you think best fits the bill of best animal parent.
0: Yep, so head over to our Instagram stories or our Twitter feed to cast your vote.
1: We will, of course, be revealing the winner of this episode's Matter of Fact Challenge next time. We are so excited now to introduce you to this month's guest, Sophie Pavel, who joined us to chat about her work in science communication and about how humour can play a huge part in helping everybody to connect with
0: wildlife. Sophie's writing has featured in Country magazine, BBC Wildlife magazine and her work on digital communication is now published in a scientific study and she is also bringing out her new book, which is very exciting.
1: Uh, so here we go then. Let's meet Sophie now.
0: Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Hi, Sophie. Welcome. Brilliant to have you on. It's really nice to chat to you. So, where did your love of wildlife begin, and what inspired you to take this path?
2: Um, I'm afraid it's a bit of a boring answer, really. I mean, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I've um. There was never like a kind of eureka moment where I was just like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. I've just always been outdoorsy, adventurous. My parents were both very keen on my brother and I having a very sort of wholesome, outdoorsy upbringing. And so let's just totally make the most of everything that we've got on our doorstep. So we've got Dartmoor, we've got the Jurassic Coast, we've got lovely countryside, the River X. Um, So it's just a very lovely childhood that was based, you know, outdoors, on the water, in the water, camping. I think it's just become part of my life, really, in a very sort of non-forced, unintended way. I think, you know, before the whole conversation around the natural world and mental health and green space became really apparent and important, um, I think my parents just instinctively recognised that that was important for our upbringing and so I think that's really formed who I am and where my interests lie our parents again um, I hate them a lot really <laughs> um, <laughs> we're just very focused on doing what we enjoy um, at uni or whether we want to go to uni or not and not kind of what we felt would give us a good job my brother was very much I want to be a doctor I really really love the idea of looking after people and now he's a doctor in A&E and amazing wow. whereas I've always been very much like I just don't know what I want to do like I'm interested in so much but I just don't really know where to channel that interest so I decided to do zoology at university because that degree was just very broad and it's been kind of the pathway for many people who are, who inspire me um, you know in this industry and yeah. often a lot of them have done zoology and it's very encompassing in terms of the natural world and the outdoors and ecology and all that sort of stuff so um, yeah, I think it's, it's just been a very gradual, very organic, I'm constantly <laughs> learning and often don't know what I'm looking at. But in many ways, that still doesn't detract at all from the joy of just experiencing it.
1: It's really nice oh. to hear, actually, somebody saying that uh, you can kind of enjoy nature without knowing all about it. And that surely yeah. has to help mm-hmm. you as a science communicator that you're kind of exploring and understanding these things at the same rate as the people you're talking to and and um oh that yeah, has got to be helpful
2: yeah completely because i think i'm i am really really unknowledgeable in many ways and i know i come across as knowing a lot but actually i'm just good at research and so are a lot of people and going to university and doing a master's and stuff has been really helpful in teaching you how to kind of see a piece of information, assimilate it, pick out what's the most important thing to sort of glean from it, and yeah. then regurgitate it Regurgitate it in a way that, you know, can hopefully help people understand. And in many ways, yeah, part of what I write on social media or the articles I write and things is just kind of my process of learning about it myself. Because nine times out of ten, I don't know that much about the subject before I write about it. And I've actually feel like I've learned more about ecology and the natural world and the wildlife around me through working and meeting people like yourselves who yeah. you know are kind of in that space too I think I learn a lot more from other people than I do from looking at books and, and mm. things
1: so Sophie I first came across you I guess it was almost a year ago now when you were doing um for Fox's sake the the online course, yeah. quiz <laughs> Which I really loved and I sat there with my my pencil oh, and did paper. You? yeah oh, yeah didn't you. do didn't do very well
2: they were quite difficult questions hence why I was a quiz master and I was good at making (laughs) up the questions but uh every time I was like oh I'm so glad I'm not doing this myself
1: (laughs) (laughs) and I know you um fundraised for us as part of that so thank you so much for that That I did
2: oh you're welcome yeah no it was a a fun time and I really wish I had more time to do more and I keep being asked but um it just takes up a bit of time and um yeah putting it all together and it's, and it's <laughs> yeah. live
1: as well, isn't it? So Hannah and, Anna and I live. recently did our first ever live thing. Like, yeah, like two different or, vibe, isn't it? <laughs> totally different. It's like, oh, I can't, I can't I delete the things that well, I said. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Hence why I, it became a drinking thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you can
1: blame it on something.
2: Exactly, because the first time I did it, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. And so many people joined the first one. It was like nearly 400 people. I couldn't wow. believe it. And um, There and, is a lot of people. Yeah, and they sort of stuck around as well for the whole hour. So I was very (laughs) glad to have a glass of wine there to keep me company. Um, But yeah, it was good fun. Hopefully, it might
0: come back in some way, but we'll see. It's a really good way to communicate with people as well because you're talking about that you're learning as you're going along. A quiz, even if people are getting things wrong, it's still a great way for you to do some science communication and communicate about wildlife with people and get people engaged with it as well because it's just a yeah. bit of fun isn't
2: it? Yeah it's so fun and, and I think that kind of like is has been the sort of I guess vibe that I've really tried to adhere to because I have so many other interests besides sort of science and nature one of which is comedy and my brother and I used to like make up our own comedy skits and stuff and uh, big big like proper old school comedy fans and I think that I was just I sometimes found science communication and natural history comms like it was missing something and by no means am I saying that 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 a quiz or something is the absolute answer but I think I just tried to think okay how can we get more people interested in nature break out of the echo chamber and just relate to people a bit more on their terms people are feeling really low at the moment especially in the last sort of year and um how can we still how can we get them excited about stuff how can we relay the weirdest wackiest side of nature because nature's hilarious yeah <laughs> you know, many times just the stupidest things that we can't even imagine and doing the quiz I found kind of re-motivated me a little bit and I did it as much I've said this many times before I did it as much for me and of my mental health at those times um you know for for everybody else and for everyone else and the fact that I got so many messages from people saying that they genuinely looked forward to it and felt better after. It was really touching. Yeah, and nice. I never imagined that it would have that effect. And I think, you know, people love learning about nature. And perhaps we need to simplify it a little bit more and not overthink yeah. the way we communicate about it. And, you know, stuff like podcasts have shown to be really effective because they yeah. kind of nail that kind of pop culture, easy listening, and that you're, you're feeling like you're just hearing your friends chatting over a pint in a pub or something and so it takes away the traditional learning aspect of it and then you come away and you're like oh I don't I didn't realize that so-and-so did that or that bird Mm. did that yeah Um, yeah. you kind of digest and you you keep the information it's like the classic you know why do I remember gossip in a trashy magazine so much more than (laughs) you know whether this bird migrates from A to B or where it stops off and things like that stuff that is genuinely important versus trashy gossip. But I think it's just the way that our information is presented in many ways.
1: Yeah. I think, I think you're right as well. It's been something that's on my mind a lot. Especially over the last couple of weeks, actually, about how we get beyond the people who are already interested in that—like mm-hmm. people that listen to our podcast—well, are wonderful listeners. They're amazing, but I would guess that the vast majority of them, they already love birds of prey and they already help wildlife. So, what's mm-hmm. calling people to action to help out? We're kind of preaching to the converted. How do we exactly. break that barrier and go? You there on the street who's never thought really about planting difficult. some wildflower seeds? How Mm. do we get you to do that? How do we get you excited? Mm. And comedy, I think, you're absolutely right. It's it's a great way to do that.
0: Yeah, you you definitely have to bring in other aspects. I think what you said about, um, you know, keeping it really simple as well is so important Mm. because I think when we communicate about nature, we think, oh, you know, we've got to be really accurate and really complicated and we've got to say all these different aspects about this. But no, that's not going to keep anyone engaged. Mm -hmm. You need to do snippets like your... um, some of your videos that you've done on YouTube, your 60-minute wildlife... 60-minute... Uh, 60 60-second 60 <laughs> wildlife, <laughs> wildlife videos are oh great. My God, because they the just dreaded archives. Yeah, <laughs> the dreaded archives, yeah. <laughs> they just, you know, go for one subject and just give a really um, digestible fact or oh, little, little piece of information, which is a really nice way to communicate, and using humour, obviously, is brilliant. Um, but I was interested in your... Um, wild cornwall study that you did so was that for your was that for your master's dissertation? Yeah it was
2: so um, I did the master's in science communication so it's an yeah. MSc at UE, the University of West England and um, what I loved about that course in particular and they're not paying me to say this <laughs> <laughs> just big fans of how they teach the course, is they really, unlike a lot of science communication courses, and I know a couple of friends who've done a couple in London or, or the one in Liverpool, um, the ones at UE really celebrate uh, or give you breathing space to explore your creativity. Because I think they are very forward-thinking in the way that they appreciate that just because you've come from a science background and generally you do need a science degree to qualify for that master's, um, people are still creative. And, you know, they're they're not mutually exclusive science and arts. And we know that now because there's so much research to show how much they really feed off of each other. And so I did a very, very labby research project in my undergrad, which was interesting, but it wasn't really my skill set. I find the lab quite intimidating Mm. and statistics and stuff frighten me like nothing Mm -hmm. else. (laughs) And and so the opportunity to do something a little bit different was really uh, tempting. And so my research question at the time, social media, Instagram, Facebook, everything was just kicking off like big time because I think it it coincided with the time of Blue Planet 2 and the whole conversation around plastic pollution. And I think people suddenly realise, oh, wait, social media is actually an amazing tool to campaign for change, especially environmental change. And then we saw all of this incredible ripple effect of people talking about plastics. Um, as a result of the whale scene in Blue Planet 2. Mm. Um, So that was a huge spark. And so my interest lay in sort of, well, how can we use social media better to communicate about these issues? And are people ready to hear those kinds of things on their social media platforms? How do we blend it so that it just sort of fits seamlessly into their current content on their feed and it doesn't stick out like a sore, boring thumb? Um, (laughs) So... My question was, how can, how can we do that? And instead of sort of going through, there wasn't any literature really on this. So the option of doing like a desk-based literature review was out of the question because there just was Mm. hardly any research. And so I thought, well, I really like hiking. I like wildlife, I like being outside. Quite like the idea of turning a project into a mini holiday. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, uh, I came up with the idea when I was on a walk um, and I saw some seals in a, in a bay, and I was w- on my phone with them. And then I looked up and I saw the sign, and it said Minehead, four hundred and thirty miles. And I remember saying to my boyfriend, I was like, Oh my gosh! Imagine how demoralising that would be if you were doing that walk and Minehead was your destination. And then it was like that planted little seed. I was <laughs> like, wait, How can how can we do? This? How can we like share this glorious footpath with more people? And communicate the wildlife en route and then that sort of snowballed into let's walk around the whole of Cornwall which is arguably the most stunning sort of sa- middle of the sandwich of the southwest coast path Yeah, and um, experiment with different platforms and take a video every day upload it to social media and then turn it into a research project by quantifying the different kinds of data that you gather so the engagement data and then also um, qualitative data so comments and wordy things of people and um yeah it kind of snowballed into a it was what 22 I think it was it was a while ago now 2017 and it was 22 day long hike yeah um did 22 videos in real time and um 300 miles miles, yeah wow um in a heat wave which was unexpected (laughs) and but I just I just absolutely adored every single minute of it and it was an insane amount of work because I had to, I was just using my phone to film yeah. and edit everything because I wanted it to be a relatable sort of endeavor that look, you can mm-hmm. see all of this and you can relay it to people just with the thing you've got in your pocket. Yeah. You don't need any fancy camera equipment. We're not trying to achieve blue chip level production here. Um, I certainly don't have any camera skills really. <laughs> I'm just good at using <laughs> a free app and um, <laughs> And yeah, and then it just sort of became something that I completely didn't expect. And then last year my supervisor and I co wrote um a paper on it and now it's in a science I saw of the that. journal. Yeah. Which is Amazing.
0: Congratulations. Crazy. Yeah, yeah thank you And then you carried on the hiking theme with um Hannah Stipfall on the I did. Hike. Yeah. Is it hike for it.
2: wildlife? It was hiking for nature, hiking um, for nature for the Wildlife so. Trust. Yeah, so we sort of oh. a similar thing, but it was a bit harder because we we shoved the same distance, so three hundred miles, but a slightly different section of the route, right, um, into two weeks instead of three weeks. Wow! But we only had time to do that because we weren't filming and making stuff on route. We were literally just hiking yeah. to raise money for for wildlife. So we were hiking around a marathon a day at times with fifteen kilos on our backs, which was.
0: On consecutive days as well that's <laughs> consecutive that's <tough. laughs> days yeah
2: it was a real we both properly had to dig deep I don't think I could have done it on my own that one yeah. because there was a lot of mental strength needed there yeah and it helps that
0: we get on very well so. yeah 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 <laughs> do you have any other fundraising challenges or hiking challenges planned um,
2: interestingly, I was actually speaking to her yesterday, and we would like to do something this year. We were meant to be doing something last year, but obviously, Covid got in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, we just want to to play it safe, obviously, with the restrictions and yeah. um, whether we we want to continue asking people to donate because obviously, people's pockets are a bit
0: yeah,
2: vulnerable at the moment. So, um, but yeah, no, definitely, we'd love to do something. Um, just need to figure out what that looks like. Yeah, we're and- sort of thinking maybe like a an extended long pub quiz maybe not that might get out of hand.
1: <laughs> days long days and days
2: exactly <laughs> A two week long pub quiz
1: um so sophie beavers mm. you work closely with um the beaver trust which we've uh, previously mentioned on the program tell us what you do for the beaver trust
2: so i um, am communications and campaigns coordinator so I work very closely with communications director who's called Eva Bishop and she's an amazing lady and we our mission is basically to educate people about beavers because these animals haven't been here for 400 years and there's an awful lot that is misunderstood about them a lot of myths that need busting and um, just you know they're they're one of ecology's greatest teachers I think as an animal Mm. in terms of what they do and the the effect they can exert on an environment disproportionately to their numbers and so it's just a fantastic sort of totem for talking about not just reintroductions but also ecosystem restoration and just ecology as a whole so we're trying to get people excited about beavers but also make sure that that excitement is well informed and not um out of hand so there's a lot of cool stuff going on yeah yeah, I love my job there.
1: (laughs) I bet, yeah, including um, The Lodgecast, So you're a fellow podcaster as well, aren't you? Fellow
2: podcaster, yeah, yeah, (laughs) like every other person in 2020. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we launched our first podcast um, in the early autumn last year called The Lodgecast, and Eva and I present it, and each week we have um, a guest to um, just discuss anything from climate change to the latest one is with Roisin. Uh, who i mentioned earlier who's a beaver ecologist Mm. and um she's probably the top expert in beaver ecology in britain and responsible for a lot of the movement of beavers around the country and so we were talking to her about beaver translocation and careers and conservation and then we also have um podcasts you know with with uh, people who've seen their first beaver and how that felt and how exciting it was and things like that so it's a it's again as you find um a really uh approachable medium to talk to people about conservation and and these mammals in general
1: mm. i'm really looking forward to the restrictions being lifted so i can have that first moment of going to see a beaver and the oh, yeah. i'm so excited oh, it's
2: really <laughs> special
1: um i also think um congratulations are in order for the accolades that your film beavers Without borders uh, achieved oh, over the you. last few months. it's It was an amazing watch, really enjoyed it, and obviously thank gave you. us a uh, kind of a quick insight really into, into yeah. the work that's been oh, done with thank Beavers you. there.
2: Um,
1: how was yeah. that to, to film?
2: Um, oh, that was an amazing experience. It, we, we never, um, it sort of totally surpassed all of our expectations. So, Nina Constable, who um, produced and directed and edited the film, she um, sort of was at the helm of this whole project and steered it in a way that was in line with all of the COVID restrictions but still managed to make it a film that could be watched you know 10 years from now and you wouldn't know that it was filmed in 2020 and just that it was it was a huge labor of love and such a collaborative project so there were lots of people in the film itself but then so many more people behind the scenes who helped contribute to the script and locations and the story and um, yeah, it's it, I think it just demonstrates how much of a people-based project beaver reintroduction is, and I think it's quite unique in that sense because beavers really do overlap in their sort of environment, but then also their story. You know, they're very much entwined with us in their past. So mm. I think this film very much reflected that. But it was an amazing project, and a real honour for me to to be involved in it. And um, we're just so delighted that it, it seems to have resonated so positively with people.
0: So going back to the sort of Psychom side of things, so mm. um, it obviously comes very naturally to you. Um, I said, well, I said I looked back over some of your older videos, and there is one particular one that we thought was quite amusing. <laughs> um, oh no! <my. laughs> oh no! That's the sound that of someone who
1: knows what's coming.
0: So what? <laughs> any reason why that one was so popular the water boatman and his
2: trumpeting penis yes so the i think well the clue's in the name really isn't it i think yeah. if you have clickbait. anything phallic on youtube it's incredible clickbait but i didn't do it for that i think i i, I knew it would be sort of probably more watched than a, an informed video about herring gull evolution but yeah um <laughs> but uh yeah i think i think it was more that i came across this fax and i was just like how can an animal so tiny and boring looking and something that we sort of just can have access to immediately if we want to yeah. have be a world record breaker for being the loudest animal relative to its size by the way that it courts a female i just thought that was mad i think it was more when i was kind of tr- trying to experiment with okay what do people find and this isn't anything revolutionary at all this has been like knowledge for ages you know people find things to do with this sort of sex and beauty and health and fitness and all of those sorts of things trump nature any day in terms of popularity so how can we merge the two and it just so happens that the natural world has all sorts of raunchy saucy materials that will engage people But then, you know, the amazing thing at the end is that it's a true story and it's happening
0: now and um, you've learned something. So what would be your top tips to maybe other young people who might want to um, sort of get into science communication or improve their science communication?
2: It's just trial and error. Mm. Um, I've learned through that and constantly still learning, you know, things that I think might work really well, sometimes bomb all the other way around, things that I don't love, but then sometimes resonate with people and do do well. I think it's more about having confidence in why you're doing it in the first place. So why do you want to communicate science? And what is it about it that you want people to hear? And what's the message you're trying to get across? So I think it's starting from the very bare minimum of why, what got you interested in it in the first place? Where are your passions? Because I think it's very easy to get sort of lost in the very, often I find intimidating world of social media, where everybody seems really expert, everyone seems to be really slick and at home in their craft, when actually most of us are just completely winging it. And so I think it's just about practicing, finding your voice and trying very much to sort of stay true to you and your personality and not trying to sort of feel like you've got to be a certain person or communicate in a certain way or phrase stuff in a way that perhaps isn't very natural to you so there's a lot to be said for just practicing at home on your own it may feel really weird and stupid I still think talking to yourself and talking to your phone is the (laughs) weirdest thing ever but it's kind of the world we live in now so be open to stuff, and there's an amazing sort of creative community on Instagram, especially with this sort of stuff. So, um yeah, just put it out and see what people think. And I think if you are not enjoying it, and you end up feeling like it's just a lot of work, and you're feeling pressured, and you're getting stressed, might be a sign that that particular mode of communication is not for you.
1: So you've you've done this like worldwide as well, haven't you? Overseas, you've done science communication. I was reading in, in Hong Kong. Is that right?
2: Oh wow yeah you, you have done your research <laughs> <I> um, <try. laughs> yeah no um that was that was a really good, that was a really fun um few weeks so I got an amazing opportunity with Hugh James who's an amazing science communicator and educator in his own right based in Wales and then Ty Aziz who I did my master's with and is now a tv researcher for netflix natural history which is awesome wow if you ever want a guest you should yeah. definitely talk to her
0: oh, and um
2: yeah she's so cool and um so the three of us went out to hong kong 50 schools or something around hong kong teaching them science communication and celebrating their science festival um working with the science museum and that was an amazing experience and yeah i think it, you're right i think it shows that sort of science communication is a global thing and that Often we can get so sucked into our little localized patch, which is important to promote and important to get stuck into. But you know, there are millions of people all over the world who need to hear these messages, and you know, a, a, we're all connected by the same sort of earth. If that's not too hippie, so. <laughs> and um, all these issues, especially things like climate change, you know, will affect all of us. So
1: you're a writer as well as a in-person science communicator on so- social media and through videos. Um, I think you've written for BBC Wildlife and Country File magazine and all sorts. And now you're kind of embarking on your own journey to produce your own literature as well, aren't you? Can you tell us anything about your upcoming book?
2: Yes, I can. Um, so it is a non fiction narrative and it's called Forget Me Not. And it's about a journey, it's about ten different journeys that I take around the UK. Um, over the last year. I've still got two more to do. And um as we speak, <laughs> and, uh, to see 10 species and habitats that I believe are A, massively overlooked by the British public and by science in many ways, and B, habitats and species that um, have a particular climate change story to tell, so are either going to be at risk from climate change, which is unfortunately the, the trend, or perhaps might fare well out of it. But either way, the sort of moral of the story is making the most of the amazing collection of habitats and species that we've got here in Great Britain um, before they might go. And, and hopefully that we won't sort of forget, forget them. So that's been a, it's, it's, the pandemic was not on the cards when I got the commission. Um, But that's actually been an interesting sort of side narrative to the story because obviously now we're learning that the pandemic perhaps arose as a result of our, um, exploitation of the land and us sort of losing control of that and so that's an interesting sort of uh, it relates a little bit to, to to some of the stories in there but um, it's, it sounds uh,
1: exciting I look forward to reading it it's, it's really when,
2: exciting thank you
1: when can we get one
2: it's it's heating up now that I've only I'm in the very sort of tense last few months of writing so end of July I have to hand it in And then um, spring 2022 is apparently when it's unleashed.
1: Exciting.
2: (laughs) Thank you.
0: What's your best wildlife moment that you've had so far?
2: This is easy. And it happened. (laughs) This is easy because it happened last year. And if we're discounting beavers, it makes it easier. So (laughs) um, last spring in the middle of lockdown, um, and I didn't have any work at the time so I was incredibly bored and I was just like oh what should I do what should I do and I was like you know what I really want to see a cockchafer i.e maybug and I was like, I've never seen one before it seems like every other person on twitter is boasting about their maybugs and their cockchafers and I haven't seen one and um <laughs> I set up a sort of moth I know they're beetles but I set up a moth trap of sorts in my garden with a white sheet and some torches and I did a big like spiel on instagram about it um I was like, oh, tonight I'm on Mission Cockchafer. I'm going to find one. It gets dark and I don't see anything. And then I'm in my room getting ready to have a shower. And I hear this amazing racket. And um, they're so noisy because there's enormous beetles. They're like the UK's biggest scarab beetle or something like that. So when they sort of clash into stuff, it's really loud. It sounds like something's fallen down the side of a bedside table or something. And anyway, (laughs) I was like, that's a weird noise and then I'm in bed getting ready to go to sleep and then <laughs> all of a sudden this cockchafer just emerges out the back of the picture behind my bed and I just see its antennae just flicking at the top of the picture <laughs> just like I don't know whether this is really creepy or really coincidental that I set up an entire moth multi- sort of mecca in, in my garden that was still there my window open, and the blooming cockchafer went into my bedroom. Instead. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and
0: That's
2: I've brilliant. never seen one since. So, of all, you know, on the day I decided, and this never happens, wildlife famously hates me, and I never see anything. On the day I wanted to see a cockchafer, it turns up in my bedroom over my bed. <laughs> that is by far the best wildlife encounter so that's that's that one you
1: you've (laughs) answered that question faster than anybody we've ever asked that question to like we asked it of ourselves ages ago and we were like oh god what's it going to be like i've no idea (laughs) what to pick but um yeah british
2: wildlife never fails
0: Mm. lastly what is what would be your one message to people out there who want to support nature
2: i think even if you feel like it's not going to make a difference it really will doesn't matter how small your action is or how infrequently you do it if you've the fact that you've decided that you care about something enough to act about it is I think the biggest hurdle and then everything from that point is going to make a massive difference whether you feel like it is or not it will or not (laughs)
1: <laughs> Wise words indeed. That makes me feel better about my tiny wildflower patch in the garden now. <laughs> it seems well there nice you go.
2: Ball. That's amazing. And like the the I think I really truly think that the biggest hurdle at the moment is the human mindset. And once you change yeah. that, stuff will happen. Mm. But it seems to, we're incredibly stubborn creatures. And yeah. um yeah, I think we need to get over ourselves a bit. <laughs>
0: Well, that was amazing, Sophie. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. It's really lovely to chat to you. Really nice to hear everything you're doing at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's good to meet you. And we'd love to welcome you, obviously, at the Trust when we're allowed to do so. Show you around and and
0: and talk to you about Birds of Prey for the day. It was brilliant to chat to Sophie, wasn't it, Tom?
1: Yeah, it was it was great, and I, you know, Sophie's got a great sense of humor, and that was what kind of really stuck out to me when uh, first encountering her doing the the quizzes during the first lockdown, um, and just a completely different way of communicating the natural world um, is interesting. Actually, what she said about um, how we kind of get beyond the bubble, you know, we we exist in this bubble of of being passionate about wildlife and nature, and how do we get to those people that that are not really that bothered about it yeah, because we need those people on board as well. We need most of us, don't we, to, to be on board with looking after wildlife and nature and uh, and being enthused about it. Okay, well I reckon it's probably time for this month's top tip.
0: Migratory birds like swifts, martins and swallows will soon be returning back from their winter migration to breed in the UK. They can travel epic distances from as far as sub-Saharan Africa so our top tip this month is to lend them a hand when they return. Special nest boxes for swifts and artificial cup nests for swallows and martins when correctly positioned can be a huge help to breeding birds. Swift nests can even be incorporated into new buildings. You could leave a muddy puddle in your garden or a muddy patch next to your pond or even some wet mud in a dustbin lid to help swallows and martins build their nests.
1: So that's it for April. We're excited that all being well, the Trust will finally be able to open its doors once more very soon. So if you haven't already, maybe consider booking a ticket to come and see us and all of the wonderful birds that live here.
0: It is an exciting time. I'm very hopeful that we are on our way to a slightly more normal year. A quick reminder of our matter of fact challenge, you can vote for either Tom's orangutan or, even better, obviously, my (laughs) giant Pacific octopus on our Instagram stories or our poll on Twitter.
1: You won't win them over that easily, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us. If you have enjoyed this episode, there's loads more where that came from. So don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss out on an episode.
0: If you'd like to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show then head over to our social media pages where you'll find our blog that accompanies this podcast and loads more insights. Just search at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube.
1: Next month we'll be joined by conservation ecologist Dr Georgia Jones who works on studying kestrels and their diets in the wild.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting one.